The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 2, 19-23. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells within him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kristen. So growing up, one of my brothers had this incredible knack for seamlessly inserting new words, words he just heard into a sentence. So he would be at school maybe and hear a word, maybe a teacher used it or an older student, and he would incorporate that into his vocabulary that very night at dinner. And the only problem was that he often didn't know what the word meant. But he acted like he knew what it meant. He said it with great confidence. It sounded good, but because he didn't understand the word, He often used it completely wrong. So there are many, many times growing up where he would make a statement and we would all pause and then we'd die laughing because he tried, but he failed. I think this happens to us as Christians. We hear words, we repeat them, but we struggle to really understand what they mean. And one of those commonly misunderstood words in Christianity is sovereignty. So if you hang out at a Bible preaching church for any length of time, you will inevitably hear someone mention the sovereignty of God. And Due to the context, you maybe can get a rough idea of what's being talked about. But is that rough idea correct? Do we know what it means to be sovereign? Sovereign or sovereignty is a royal term. It's the word reign with an old prefix that means above. And so, just in the basic sense, sovereignty means to reign above someone or to reign above something. Charles III is now the sovereign of England. He's the head of state. He's the king who wears the crown. But honestly, that use is a little confusing because though he's called a sovereign, we know that he doesn't actually rule anything. He doesn't make laws or enforce laws. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, are we talking about a similar sovereignty as that of Charles, some sort of title, or is it different? Maybe before we answer that question, we should ask, does it even matter? Is it important? understand God's sovereignty, why would it be important? Just this week, someone from Redeemer told me that if I didn't believe God was sovereign, I would be flat on my back, unable to get up. It's the only thing that keeps me going. Do you ever feel like life is out of control? Does it feel chaotic? And in that chaos, you find yourself responding to all of the insanity with frustration? or anger, or despair? Do you sometimes look at those people who seem to have it all together and things seem to be running smooth and you get envious? Are you disgruntled about your life? This isn't where you expect it to be. 
you have regrets about decisions you made and how things would be so much different if you made a different decision? Does it, does it seem maybe like you're always running, but you're not actually ever getting to what it is you're running after? Like, if you answer yes to any of those questions, then I want to encourage you this morning. The second chapter of Daniel not only helps us understand what it means when we talk about God being sovereign, but it shows us how we should respond to it. And there are a few truths as hopeful and life-giving as the sovereignty of God, few truths that can help us stand when life wants to crush us, few truths that can anchor us when the hurricane hits. The sovereignty of God can be a soothing lotion to the weary and worn-out soul. So we're going to look just at the first half of Daniel 2 this morning. We'll get to the interpretation of the dream next week. What I want to do is I want to sort of read through it together and just, I want you to see God's sovereignty. And I think this, it's displayed here in, in such a rich way. Like, I think we can learn more about sovereignty of God in this chapter than, than a full semester sitting in a seminary class under a great professor. Like, God's sovereignty comes out here in vibrant detail. Like, we can feel it and sense it as much as we understand it. After we do that, we'll just look at four ways we respond to it. So this chapter opens... With Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's the young ascendant king of Babylon. He's defeated powerful nations in battle. He's brought smaller nations like the nation of Judah under his dominion, and yet the chapter opens with him troubled. So, what could possibly trouble the sovereign ruler of mighty Babylon? Look at verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. He can't sleep, he's having nightmares. And they're keeping him awake. Now, these dreams aren't the result of a horror movie that he watched on Friday night or eating bad pizza, right? These are different. He understands there's something different. Now, we know Nebuchadnezzar is a religious man. You remember in chapter 1 when he defeated Israel, he took the treasures from the temple and it says he placed them in the temple of his gods. He named these young Hebrew men after his gods. Even his own name is a reference to one of his gods. And so he believes that the dream he's had is a message from the gods, that there's some deeper meaning. And he doesn't know the meaning, but he's afraid of what it might mean. Well, since he's a powerful king, he does what powerful kings do. He summons his minions. I don't have any minions to summon, but imagine the, the fun of summoning your minions and commanding them, you're going to help me understand this dream that's troubling me. Verse 2, so the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came to study for the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and I am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, and this is a little insertion by the translators. Aramaic begins here, so it changes, the, the book of Daniel changes the language it was written in. May the king live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. So the, so the court of counselors, the minions are happy to help. Because they recognize he's agitated, and they know this from experience. An agitated king, that's no good for anyone. And so they say, like, just tell us a dream. We will apply all of our study, our training, our insights into giving you the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar has a different plan. He says, I want you to tell me not simply what it means. I want you to tell me what the dream was. And if you fail to do so, this is what he says, I'm going to turn you into a pile of body parts. That's what he says here. And I'm going to level your houses. You're done. Look at verse 5. King replied to the Chaldeans, or the wise men, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But 
If you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, then you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. So verse 7, they respond by saying, well, just tell us what the dream was and we'll certainly give you the interpretation. He refuses and threatens them a second time. Verse 8 9, it says he believed they were conspiring to trick him. And he demands again from them, I want the dream and the interpretation. Now when the wise men, that's what Chaldeans are, they're wise men, answer this time, they speak to the king in a way that I don't think you normally would speak to a king. They speak with a type of blunt honesty. But what they say rings true. Look at verse 10. They answer the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Now here we see the limits of human sovereignty. No matter how much power a king has, no matter how large his army, no matter how full his accounts, no matter how wise his court There are certain things he cannot do. It makes no difference how angry he gets or how much he threatens. His power has clear limits. This is what his counselors say to him. They say, listen, no one on earth can do what you demand. In other words, the king's arm seems strong, but it's actually short. It can't reach and attain what he's hoping Nebuchadnezzar, he's great and he's powerful, but he can't get what he desperately wants. But their final statement, I think, is the most remarkable. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, the only one, the only one who can help you, the only one to give you the power or give you what you want, the only one who has that kind of power is a god. But they say, verse 11, listen to this, gods don't dwell with mortals. Gods don't dwell with mortals. In other words, they say, can't, can you even imagine a God coming to dwell with mortals. What Jesus did on that first Christmas morning is utterly inconceivable to these Chaldean wise men. Yet in the beauty of God's plan, some Chaldean wise men one day will journey to Bethlehem to worship the God who came to dwell with mortals. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like what he say. they say, so he goes crazy. Because he's not used to being told things are impossible. He may not have the power and authority to get the answer he wants, but he certainly has the power and authority to make them pay for not giving him that answer. Verse 12. It says, because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. So for some reason, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends were not at this meeting with the king, yet they're included here in Order 66, the elimination of all the wise men. So so what will they do when their life is threatened by an angry king? Verse 14, then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, Why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. 
urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. So the wise men were really clear with the king. They said in verse 10, no one on earth can give you the answer. And so Daniel and his friends don't seek an answer from someone on earth. We're told that they seek an answer from the God of the heavens. In fact, five times in this chapter, that phrase is used, God of the heavens. Someone who is truly sovereign must be above the earth. To rule over it, he must be over it all, able to intercede at any moment in any particular place. No earthbound king can truly be sovereign because he cannot know all that is happening as it happens, nor does he have the strength or ability to reach that situation and intercede either for good or evil. So they pray to the God of the heavens. And what happens next? Well, verse 19 says he answers their prayer. And they respond with praise. I want you to pay careful attention in their response to what they say about God. I think this, more than any definition in a systematic theology book, explains what it means that God is sovereign. So look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Now, now there's a big difference between being wise and powerful and wisdom and power belonging to you. Like, I have an Apple iPhone, but Apple does not belong to me. Like, that's a big difference. And so you say, like, to be truly sovereign, it means that all wisdom and power belong to you, and then you're able to give it out as you see fit to whomever you wish. Now, verse 21, he changes the times and the seasons. God is sovereign over nature. Though God is unchanging, he's the one who determines that, praise the Lord, it may not be summer anymore. He removes kings and establishes kings. This is going to become significant. In fact, maybe this is actually the, the point of the book of Daniel. In a lot of ways, he removes kings and sets up kings. That God is in charge of all human government, that he is the true source of strength and authority. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Verse 22, he reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. God is able to see and understand everything. I mean, think about this. It says light emanates from God, and so that way there is nothing dark to him. Anywhere God looks, like it's no longer dark because light shines there, and so there's no part of the human heart that is so deep or dark that God does not see it. There's nothing that escapes his notice, nothing that can be hidden from his sight. Verse 23, he says, I offer in thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors. If you really want to be sovereign, then you need to outlast every generation. Otherwise, the promises you make, you are unable to keep at some point in the future because you're dead, you're gone, you're tired. Yet God can make a promise to one generation and he can keep it generations later. He says, I praise you because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we ask of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. We see God is present in the affairs of his world. That God is not distant, he's not disinterested, but he is actively ruling the world he has created. So after praising God as the true sovereign ruler of the world, the true king on the throne, Daniel takes his message to the little king on his little throne. 
You see, after hearing from God, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is the strongest kid in preschool. Right? He seems impressive to those fellow preschoolers, but there's a big world outside those doors. And so Daniel introduces Nebuchadnezzar to the true ruler. Verse 24. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king. I'll give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. I hope Daniel didn't pause too long after that, right? Because the guards might have started to move. He doesn't. He continues. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So there's no question that we're supposed to, as we read this account, contrast King Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne in Babylon with God sitting on his throne in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar has the appearance of power, great and mighty Nebuchadnezzar. But did you notice this passage is filled with things he can't do? It starts with the fact that he can't sleep. Have you ever tried to force yourself to sleep? Anytime you have an early flight, I don't know if you're like me, I'm not sleeping. But I'm going to try really, really hard. And the harder I try, the more elusive sleep becomes. I can't make myself sleep, and neither can Nebuchadnezzar. He can't interpret his dreams. He can't force the wise man to help them. He literally says to them, I'm going I'm to turn you into limbs. And you're going to make your house a dump where they will throw their trash. And yet, he can't get an answer. He can't handle his own fear and anxiety. That's why he's lashing out at others. And in verse 30, notice, it's shocking. It says he doesn't even know his own mind. So can a person really be sovereign if they don't even understand their own mind? Now, think about God. What is God unable to do? (laughs) Nothing. Absolutely. Well, God doesn't sleep, but that's because he doesn't need to, and he does it without ever getting tired. God not only interprets Nebuchadnezzar's need, but here's Daniel's point. He's like, the reason you dreamed those things was because God placed that dream in your mind. God gave you the dream. God transported this this captive from Israel to Babylon to have him there at that very moment so that he could then interpret the dream. Well, God certainly is never fearful or anxious. He doesn't lash out in frustration. God understands everything, including our minds. What we think, why we think it, God knows it even when we have no idea. You know, I know because it reminds us of another king who had a dream. When Pharaoh was troubled by a dream, God raised up Joseph to give him the answer. Later, Joseph was speaking with his brothers, the ones who'd betrayed him. 
And he summed up God's sovereignty when he said to them, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God is in control of all people and events at all times, and he is able to accomplish good even when someone chooses to do evil. There has never been nor ever will be one second of one day when God loses control. And so in this passage, we see this contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. One is powerful and one only seems powerful. But there's a second contrast, and that's between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. The, the one who thinks he's sovereign and he's realizing his limits and the one who trusts that God is sovereign. And so I think here this is instructive for us as the people of God living in Babylon. How do we respond to the sovereign God? How does knowing He's in control affect the way we live? Here's first of all, we don't get angry. We don't get angry. Does Nebuchadnezzar's response seem a little disproportionate? If you say no, we need a separate appointment this week. Like, yes! If, if, if someone can't interpret your dream, don't threaten to kill them. Don't threaten to kill anyone this week for any reason. Like, it's a bit excessive. Is it unfair? Absolutely. Like, we, could, we would say this borders on neurotic. Maybe it crosses the border. So what's going on? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to be a powerful king. And like all men who rise to positions of great power, he's afraid of losing it. So historically, what does a king do the moment they come to power? They kill all their rivals, right? Someone told me just this week, they said it was safer to be Caesar's pig than Caesar's brother. Kings are insecure. They're filled with anxiety. They're scared. Why? Because everyone bows down to them and says, oh, great and sovereign king, and deep down they know they're not. And so his lack of control about the future, it turns him into an insecure bully. Anger stems from insecurity. Because we're scared, we bluster and rage. Our, our fear lurks behind our anger. Do you see this in your own life? That, that if the thing you look to for security is threatened, then you respond with anger and frustration. So if an employee who reports to you at work does a bad job, right, you respond with anger at them. Maybe, maybe yell at them or, or send them that sharply worded email. And whatever you say the reason is, well, I just want the company to do a good job. I'm just concerned about this. The reason behind the reason is that their poor performance might threaten your future. It's easy for parents to get angry with their kids because kids have this natural ability to ruin the plans parents make. Like, no one has to teach them. They're just good at it. I mean, how many times have you said to them, I had planned a nice day, but you dot, dot, dot. So how do you react when your child does something that spoils the plans you made that day? Does a little Nebuchadnezzar come out in you? We could make a long list of unexpected, unwelcome things that easily make us angry. Things our spouse says. A letter from the HOA. Not getting a raise. Politics, health problems, in-laws, inflation, and so on. So why do we find these things so frustrating? Because we want to be in control. We, we want the future that we have envisioned 
for ourselves. And whenever something threatens or we perceive that it threatens what we have planned, we're tempted to respond in anger. You know, maybe one of the benefits of being a slave in exile is that you give up the illusion of control. Daniel, as he sat in his quarters, they might have been nice at this point, but he certainly weren't always nice. Knowing he was a prisoner of this country, he didn't think he was in control. He was pretty confident he wasn't. Yet, he knew God was in control. And so here he is. He's confident in God's wisdom and faithfulness and God's goodness and grace. I mean, think about this. Daniel's life is actually threatened. Like, knock, knock, knock. Daniel opens the door, and there's a guy in a black mask holding an axe. And he holds up a piece of paper, and he points to Daniel's name. Where is he going to go? Where is he going to run? What's he do? Does he freak out? I would have freaked out. He doesn't scream about the injustice of it all. I mean, it is unjust. He doesn't call Nebuchadnezzar names. I think many of us live with a slow burning fuse and we're just waiting for the spark of perceived injustice to set us off. So does it seem to anyone watching us that we believe God is in control when we respond so aggressively? One of the psalms we studied this past summer is Psalm 37. And it starts by saying, don't go agitated by evildoers and their unjust schemes. I was studying the psalm just a couple weeks ago again, and I remember there's this phrase that is, it's, it struck me. It says this, give up your rage. Give up your rage. I think this would grow a long way probably to our witness in the community if all of us gave up our rage. And it goes on to say, give up your rage because all it does is produce harm. And the psalmist then follows up by saying, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Like, we're not in control. But that doesn't mean this world is governed by a roll of dice. Like, God is in heaven and He acts. Put away your rage. Trust that God has everything under control. Second, because He is sovereign, we love our enemies. We love our enemies. We don't have to get even. We don't have to make them pay. We're freed from the need to exact revenge. Sometimes we feel like it's our responsibility to make sure that person doesn't get away with it. We've got to make sure they pay. They've got to know they can't do that. It's not our job. Instead, what we do is we seek the good of people. We look for ways to bless those who would seek us, who would seek to harm us. I was thinking about this, and I was like, who are my enemies? And it's really hard to come up with my enemies. Daniel had real enemies, right? I mean... We're going to see in this book, many times his life is threatened. The other counselors there, they're envious of Daniel's success. Well, of course they are, right? It says that he's this captive from from Israel who's brought there. He's supposed to be a slave, and he ends up being ten times better than them in anything they do. That would be obnoxious. He keeps getting promoted, and so they hate him, and they Look for ways to hurt and harm them. Even the king that Daniel serves is his enemy, right? That king destroyed Daniel's country and he brought Daniel in captivity. He kidnapped Daniel from his home. So Daniel could have used this as a way to get ahead. Right? Couldn't Daniel have said, we would have said like that would have been very savvy of Daniel. 
if he would have expanded his influence with the king by saying, King, let me point out to you, those guys over there, they couldn't help you. I think you said something about killing them. Once you finish, let me know, and then I'll answer. But twice in this passage, he specifically mentions them and the need for them not to be killed. Verse 24, though he is a captive, he rescues his enemies from death. Is there someone who wants to hurt you? Is there a coworker who's envious of your success and they, they really are trying to undermine you? Whispering untrue things about you? Is there a professor who has it out for you? A relative who speaks badly about you to the rest of the family? Are you tempted to respond in kind? So, so where does that temptation come from? Right? It comes from a desire to protect ourselves, a desire to protect our future. But if God is sovereign, that means our future is fully in His hands, we don't have to spar with those who want to hurt us. Because of God's faithful love, because of His commitment to our future, we can love others just as He loves us. We can be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving others just as we have been forgiven. Third, because God is sovereign, we live with boldness. We live with boldness. Now, Christians from every generation, they've been awed by the boldness of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're, they, they're in Babylon, and they display such boldness. Right? Daniel goes to those in charge. He tells them, I will get the king an answer. He hasn't even prayed about it yet. God hasn't given him an answer, but he's confident. Then when he stands before the king and speaks to him, he doesn't sound like a, a, an enslaved prisoner begging for his life. He speaks with a type of refreshing boldness, as if he's not concerned with what Nebuchadnezzar has planned to do to him. Now, Daniel's boldness is not arrogance or rudeness. Verse 14 says he speaks with tact and discretion. So God not only gives him the wisdom to answer the king, he gives him the wisdom to season his language with grace. So I think this is such an instructive example to us, brothers and sisters. We should be bold. We are not bold enough in our service for the king. We should be bold, but it is a type of boldness that is tempered with kindness and compassion. We saw this in the last chapter. We see it again here. We're going to see this throughout. Here they are living boldly for the king, and yet they are kind, and they are compassionate, and, and yet they see God work. We should be willing to enter conflict like Daniel does and bring healing and resolution. One of the keys to Daniel's boldness here is that he's not alone. He's part of a community. Like verse, the first two chapters, he, he's surrounded by these friends who are willing to stand with him. So I grew up, and there was this song, this line from a song we used to sing, which said, dare to be a dare, Daniel, dare to stand alone. But notice, Daniel hasn't yet stood alone. He, he will, eventually, chapter 6, much, much much later, decades later. But at this point, he hasn't stood alone because he's got a community of like-minded brothers standing with him. So maybe there's a way right now you're trying to stand alone when you don't have to. You've got a community with you. This is why we, we every week remind you, like you need to meet and be with your brothers and sisters at church on Sundays, community group, other times, you need people because it's hard to live for God in Babylon. Don't do it alone when you don't have to. 
And Christian brother, sister can be like lighter fluid poured on the smoldering ember of your courage, helping it roar to life. Meet with your brothers and sisters. Now notice Daniel's boldness is not about him. It's actually a way of loving his neighbor. So I, I told you this book is unique in the sense that it, half of the book, the middle the chapters here are actually written in a different language. So it starts in Hebrew the language of Israel. It goes to Aramaic, the common language, more, much more common language of the day. Then it returns in chapter 7 to, to Hebrew. Well, like, what's up with that? And there's a lot of theories. I think it's this. I think this first half of the book is primarily God's message to the nations. Notice he is sending his ambassadors into the court of a foreign king where they will proclaim the good news of his salvation and his rescue. Like, God has gone to Babylon is what's going on. And he speaks through his people. You know, if Daniel and his friends weren't bold, there wouldn't be a book of Daniel. And what makes us bold? Well, it makes us bold that we know God rules. So if you're bold because you recognize God is in control, what bad thing can happen to you? Now, don't, this is my disclaimer. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Because God sometimes simply lets us be, the consequences come upon our jerkiness. Don't be a jerk. But if you're bold for him, particularly if it's seasoned with kindness and grace in the manner in which you do it, can the sovereign ruler of the cosmos not protect you in those moments? I think the book of Daniel answers that question quite clearly. That God is very capable to protect his people when they live for him. Here's the final thing we do because God is sovereign, we pray with confidence. We pray with confidence. So what do they do? They pray. Immediately they pray, and they pray not timidly. They've got this confidence that God's going to answer them. Notice their prayer. It's real. It's genuine. It's unapologetic. It's very similar to what we've seen when we go through the book of Psalms. But why pray if God is sovereign? Right? If God's in control, why pray? Well, the simplest reason is because He tells us to. But more than that, He invites us to. And he tells us it matters. And even if we don't understand the mechanics of it, we can trust him when he says that he hears and he responds to the pleas of his children. If a dad told his college-age son to ask him if he needed help on his school bill, wouldn't it be foolish of the son to not ask because he assumes dad's got it anyway? See, our fathers, we know he'll take care of us. But he says to us over and over, ask me. Tell me your needs. Tell me your desires. I will listen. I will answer. So why wouldn't we pray? Daniel's prayer turns into praise in verses 20 through 23 because praise and prayer are like covers of a book. They blend seamlessly around the life of a Christian. Now, I know we talk a lot about prayer. And I know that we struggle to do it. I think if we did maybe an anonymous survey and said, do you pray enough? It would probably be one of the few things in life everyone could agree on. No, I don't. I should more. You know, maybe what we can, one thing we can see in Daniel's examples here is that it might be easier sometimes to pray if we prayed with people. So maybe you struggle praying alone. Maybe it's distraction, busyness. Certainly your flesh is pushing against that. And if you simply scheduled times to pray with someone else, that would be an encouragement to actually do it. Like you, you don't have to pray alone all the time. Like pray with others. 
Do we think this is the only time they prayed? Well, we, we, we know from chapter 1 they pray together. We know prayer is a pattern later in Daniel's life. Could it be that praying with others prepared him? Is there a Hananiah, a Mishael, an Azariah in your life that would pray with you in your times of need? I think sometimes we don't pray because we're ashamed. We think, man, I, I really should have started praying about this weeks ago. Okay. You're probably right. You probably should have. But do you know when a good time to start praying is? Anytime. Like anytime. Right now. Today. On the way home. Over dinner. Before bed. In bed. Don't let shame over your struggle to pray keep you from praying. There, there are lots of lessons in this passage. I want to end, though, by reminding you that Jesus is our example and our hope. So Jesus is our example of what it looks like to trust that God is sovereign over every single detail of his creation. So if anyone ever had a reason to get angry over injustice, it was Jesus. I mean, Daniel is a sinner. And so we could say in some sense it's, there are consequences for his sin, even if it didn't cause this. But Jesus never sinned. And yet Jesus is executed as a criminal. And while he's being executed, does Jesus get angry with his enemies? Or does he hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. While Jesus ministered on earth, there was a boldness that shocked people. In fact, he goes to his hometown and he reads from the scriptures and he speaks and it says they were astonished saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? So he was bold, but yet who was kinder or more gentle than Jesus? And Jesus prayed with a boldness because he knew his father listened to him. He had confidence that his father delighted in his requests and wanted to answer him. And Jesus knows what it's like to live and suffer and to trust God through it all. But, but more than our example, listen, he is our hope and he is our salvation. So this chapter begins with Daniel, the faithful servant of God, unjustly condemned to death. And it ends with Daniel exalted to the right hand of the king. And on that journey from death to exaltation, he saves his enemies. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel story, that we are saved from death by Jesus. And because he is sitting at the right hand of the sovereign king of the universe, we have then been given power to live and serve him faithfully right where he's placed us. When Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar, this is what he said to him. He says, listen, I can't do this. No man can do this. But there is a God in heaven who can do this. Brothers and sisters, this is what we say. We say the same thing. We're not special. We're not able. But God has given us power to live and testify before kings. In just a moment, we're going to sing these lyrics. They're familiar lyrics. They say there's no guilt in life. No fear in death. Fear in the face of death, maybe. Why? This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. See, that's the truth that empowers us to live faithfully in Babylon. Do you understand that Jesus controls your destiny? That he is sovereign? This is what allows us to live with boldness is because we understand that there is one who reigns over all. And what we cannot do, what we are unable to do, it's 
we're okay with because he gives us the power to do exactly what he calls us to do. Pray with me. Father, help us understand that you are sovereign over all things. And so if there's a difficult circumstance in our life right now that you're not caught by surprise, we often can't sleep. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we're fearful and we're anxious and we're frustrated by things that are outside of our control. And so help us to remember that it's not outside of you. That you are sovereign over it all. And that what you call us to, you equip us for. And like the psalmist, we can give up our rage because we commit our way to you. We trust and we know you will act. So help us this week to live with a boldness because we recognize that you alone are the sovereign king over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.